So it's been an incredible year here at the official Sasta podcast. Over 50 episodes, many more thousands of listeners in many more countries joining us. And so I wanted to celebrate the incredible year we've had with the most downloaded shows of 2019. And really, we can split this into two different categories, investors and operators. And given that we'd have nothing without the incredible operators of this industry, I wanted to start with our most downloaded founder episode of 2019. This was one where I had a detailed and specific schedule, and I asked about 10% of it. The discussion was amazing and just flowed so naturally. Actually, and so this was also one of my favorites to record of 2019. And so with that, I'm excited to welcome Manny Medina, founder and CEO at Outreach, the market-leading sales engagement platform that turns your team into a revenue-driving machine. To date, Manny's raised over $114 million in funding from some great people, including the likes of Alex Clayton at Spark, Mayfield, Trinity Ventures, and DFJ Growth, just to name a few. Prior to founding Outreach, Manny spent seven years with Microsoft, where he ran the Latin America and Canada Business Development Group for Microsoft. Microsoft's emerging mobile division, representing $50 million of yearly revenue. Before that, Manny was a senior product manager at Amazon, where he engineered the compensation system for Amazon Associates and web services, which accounts for 15% of Amazon's traffic. But before we move into the show today, if there's one thing I suck at, it's organization, and that's always around expenses for me. Keeping receipts, losing them, taking photos months later, oh, it's a nightmare. And then we started using Plio, and it enables employees to buy what they need for work with no fuss and no more out-of-pocket purchases. Plus, you take the photo of the receipt in real time, so you don't even need to keep the receipt. And the design is beautiful. Genuinely, it makes it quite fun. Clearly, I need to get out more given I just said that. But don't take my word for it. More than 5,000 European companies use Plio, from Viner Media to Voy and Byron. And you can check them out today. And for SaaS to listeners only, Plio are saying, hey, go on your next business lunch paid for by Plio, and they give you £50 on the Plio card to trial. Genuinely, I absolutely love it. And you can check it out today at plio.io forward slash SASTA. However, metrics are key to every business and misreported metrics are damaging. Missed revenue opportunities and multiplying process inefficiencies. Does that sound familiar? Well, everyone in your go-to-market org is punching above their weight, yet no needle is moving nearly as fast as it should. Each morning you wake up with the three big questions, increasingly hard to answer revenue questions, that is. How do we sustain the revenue we're bringing in? How do we identify more avenues to grow revenue? And how can we get real-time visibility into the cracks and fissures of the revenue engine? If that's you, it's exceedingly likely that your revenue infrastructure and processes are headed towards a dreaded natural conclusion, or rather a tangle, a huge bowl of SaaS spaghetti. That diagnosis screams of a revenue operations problem. You can head on over to chargebee.com forward slash Harry to learn more about how to battle these inefficiencies in your revenue engine. And if you want to untangle your revenue operations with Chargebee, use Harry25 at checkout and get 25% off your plan. That's Harry2525. And finally, thanks to my friends at WePay. Let me introduce you to another super cool player in the space, Invaluable, the world's leading online marketplace for fine art, antiques, and collectibles. Auction houses, galleries, and dealers use Invaluable to grow their businesses and connect more people around the world with the things they love. And it works with more than 5,000 auction houses globally, including Sotheby's and Philips. And Sotheby's is actually using them as their core technology partner for online bidding on all of its auctions. And you can learn more today at invaluable.com. But you can also find growth with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. But that's quite enough from me. So now without further ado, I'm very, very excited to hand over to Manny Medina, founder and CEO at Outreach. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. 
Manny, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. As I said, I've heard so many great things from Alex at Spark, so thank you so much for joining me today. No, it's great. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I would, though, love to start, Manny, with a little bit about you. So tell me, how did you make your way into what I've come to love in the world of SaaS and really be one of the leaders in the world of sales engagement with the founding of Outreach? Well, we started Outreach because we were running out of cash in our previous company. And we did the math, and we figured that if we were able to get our reps to perform, by booking 10x more meetings that they would have been in the past, that we would actually dig ourselves out, that we would generate enough cash to get back on our feet. So we decided to go ahead and build that. And we built a workflow that generated 10x more meetings for our reps. And our reps were so excited. And as we were going to those meetings, the people holding those meetings you know, would ask, you know, what's your special sauce? What's your special power? And the reps would immediately talk about how we build this workflow that allows us to book 10 more 10x more meetings. And people would immediately stop and be like, I don't want to buy your service. I want to buy that tool that you built internally. And after about 60 of those meetings, we realized that we had a pivot in our hands and that we need to really go do that. I love that. I'm too intrigued. You know, I've just come out of fundraising for a fund. And often people say the reason funds don't raise is because they can't get top of funnel full enough. When we apply that to the, the SaaS world, is that why businesses don't succeed? Because they can't get top of funnel full enough? And how does that kind of relate to actually conversion? Because you can fill top of funnel and not convert. How do you think about the balance between the two? So from my own experience, and I can only speak to that, I'm not a VC and I don't I don't have a portfolio per se, but from my own experience and from seeing our customers, what I can tell you is that if you don't manage the top of funnel aggressively, you will either not have enough to feed the team or your revenue will be choppy. And this is for two reasons. One is there's a number that we track internally and many, many high-performance sales shops track internally, which is pipeline coverage, meaning how much pipeline do you have to cover the number that you're trying to hit? And it varies the depending on how well you're doing in the market. So if it's a new market where you're still educated in the market like us, you need anywhere between three to five pipeline coverage to have somewhere in the range of 90% certainty you're going to hit the number. If you are a company which you're dominating the market and it's mostly you're, you know, you're going in and you're placing a solution or your people are order taking, you don't need more than two, maybe less than that. So for instance, a company like Structure that has a stronghold in the education market, they run a less than 2x pipeline coverage. And it varies widely between. And, and that coverage comes from being very deliberate about how you manage the, your top of funnel. The second piece around that is that at the rep level, managing your top of funnel or managing at least your stewarding your book of accounts would allow you to be re- very recurrent in hitting your numbers. So there is something that we spoke about about two to three years ago that we call the sine wave of sales. And that, that's a concept that Mark Kosoglo, our VP of sales, introduced me to, which is when you're a rep, you begin your life building funnel. And then as the funnel gets build, you start switching your attention from building funnel to closing that funnel that you built. And you're very excited. So you can see the money coming through. You can see your commission checks clearing. You can see all sorts of vacations and assets that you're buying given those new sources of income. But you stop minding the building of the funnel again. So you can see that the oscillation from closing back down to prospecting again. And then that would take a little bit to build out the funnel and then you're back to closing and forgetting that you have to build funnel and so on and so forth. So for you as a rep to sort of have a some kind of recurrency in the in the generation of, of your commission and the generation of your business, you need to be able to manage both. You need to be able to store your pipeline as well as close it. Does that make sense? Job, that? It does absolutely make sense. But kind of hearing about the oscillation between the building and then transition to selling and converting, actually bringing dollars in, I do yeah. think about kind of the specialization of sales and 
all, why isn't that rep focused purely on consistently building and then passing over the highest quality, warmest leads to the kind of closing sales rep? How do you think about the specialization of sales? So actually, they don't have to transition between the two and they can consistently focus on that specific function. So role specialization is a bit of a catch-all and a big bag of things. You can take two very successful sales leaders and you will get a different answer for that. So you can take somebody like Lars Nielsen and he will tell you that roles should absolutely be specialized. And then he would have a, a very good crack team that whose job is to open doors and get appointments. And then you can ask somebody like Carlos de la Torre from Mongo and he uses pipeline generation as core function to his AEs. And there's pros and cons for each, right? So role specialization clearly makes sense because you're having a resource that specializes in that very narrow set of activities and they get very good. They very get very good at it. The problem though is that the SDRs tend to be younger, less experienced and unable to carry conversations at the highest level. So even though you may be very good at opening doors, you may not be as good as opening the right door. So you may need to put in more effort to get the same result. And that, this is a question mark. This is why there's no silver bullets in sales. You have to just try it in your environment and see what works with your product, your people, and your customer types. If you ask Carlos, he would argue that a seller needs to be a hunter by definition. So a seller who doesn't prospect is of no use to him. So you can argue that a seller that is very experienced and gets a book of business. So for instance, if you were to look at the traditional industries like financial services, for instance, again, given territories, and then you just get dropped into a city and then ask to make, hey, you get a phone book and then you ask to you know deliver a number at the end of the year. So at that point, you're prospecting, you're maintaining, you're closing, you're expanding, you're renewing, etc. So the sales motion will depend on the sort of the efficient boundary of activity and results of whatever industry you're selling into. Can I ask, you said the word quota there, and especially just now you said the word results. I'm always fascinated by quota construction and how to construct a quota that's ambitious enough that really moves the business forward in terms of trajectory, but also that's not too ambitious that if it's not hit, which it likely won't be if it's too ambitious, it won't yeah. deject the team. How do you balance between ambition and then not being building kind of a dejected workforce if they don't hit it? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question at the beginning of the podcast because I have a very nuanced view on this that is kind of a long story. So I'll get right. it. Great, I love that. Anyway. <laughs> so one of my North Stars in this business is a gentleman by the name of Steve Wolski. And Steve Wolski was the chairman and CEO of a company called PTC, Parametric Technology Corporation. And PTC is sort of the source of some of the greatest sales minds of this age, as, at least in B2B SaaS. And Steve Wolski taught me the following lesson. There's two numbers that are relevant in your business. So one is more relevant than the other. So you have the quota number. And the quota number is a number that tells the rep that you get to play another round. It's quota number is a number that the rep needs to clear to remain in the business and continue to, to sort of work here, if you would. The problem with the quota number is that the quota number has a very high impact on your psychology and your mentality. So in his view, and I subscribe to this, you want to set your quota low so that the rep clears their quota early in the quarter or early in whatever period you're measuring so that he can change his behavior and have a bit of a different spring in his step and feel like a winner every time he's walking into account because he already cleared quota and he has nothing to lose. He's now here for the enjoyment of the game. But what he manages against is not the quota. What he manages against is the average rep production. And that is the number that you want to make monotonically go up and to the right. So what you do is you look at across your reps and see what numbers are they hitting. Take the average of that, draw a line, see who falls below that and work those people up and continually do so. And the ones that don't work out, you see out. That way you achieve two things. One, you achieve the ability to increase rep efficiency and production without having the bearing of the quota on their head that 
make them feel like time is running out on them. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. I do have two subsequent questions though for you from that. And it's one, you said about kind of working them out. Does that not build a culture of almost fear if one fails to hit their numbers or fear of uh, not making it, so to speak? And how do you think about that and approaching that with the team and morale at the center? Well, that's a great question. And the question is, how do you handle that? So hopefully you have an organization in which you have understood the factors that go into diagnosing and troubleshooting reps performance. And that's when the, you know, is it building the pipeline? Is it managing your pipeline? Is it closing? Is it understanding the product? Is it your book of accounts? Is it your territory? There's uh, several factors that play into that. My preference is to make sure that the rep understands that they own their own business and that they have levers to pull for their business, such as marketing or events or demand gen or SDR support, things that can support either creating pipeline owning or engaging with more people in their account. But the rep at the end of the AE will be the quarterback and the owner of that sort of mini P&L, if you would. And as long as you're giving them the resources and you're explaining to them how do you manage the resources, you hope that the coaching and the training that you give them is enough to continue to have them perform at or above average. You said about kind of the resources that allow them to really fulfill their potential. In terms right. of those resources, at the rep level, how do you think about resource allocation without maybe being too generous to allow them to use too many resources to hit what they should be hitting with less? So that's a, that's a great question. And frankly, this is a bit of both an art and a science. And if you get too generous, then your unit economics may go sideways. But if you don't get too generous, then you may force a rep that would otherwise be a great performer or get a region that otherwise would have been a great region for you to not perform. So I think about this problem in sort of in categories. My first problem is to make sure that you have enough capacity in a region to make sure that you get the return from that area. The second problem is then you have to get the reps to production, to regular production that monotonically goes up. And once you have those nailed, and by the way, very few people actually even get to that on a regional basis. Once you have capacity and production figured out on a regular basis, then you can optimize. Then you can talk about driving efficiency. And efficiency is a journey. Efficiency is not like a one and done. Efficiency, you sort of draw a frontier as to where you want to go and you tweak the amount of investments you do via events, via self-prospecting, via SDR, via demand generation, via ABM, whatever sort of the, the tool set that you use to continue to keep that pipeline stoked. You have to dial it over time. And it may change because you may change depending on your saturation. It will, it will change depending on your brand recognition and it may change depending on all sorts of market dynamics. So for instance, for us, the unit economics for our business continually get better as people know what sales engagement is. So when we started two years ago, it was 100% educational sale where we were absolutely calling outbound because inbound was never going to show up. And if I got somebody on the phone, I was evangelized. Now, to this day, now we're seeing RFPs. Now we're seeing people switching. Now we're seeing people asking the right questions. And, and that's because the market is evolving as people get educated. And so you're efficient frontier of how you generate pipelines so it changes over time. So this is why there's no silver bullets. You just have to constantly test and see what works and constantly optimize based on your dynamics. Can I ask, in terms of that education element up front that you had to go through, was that super tough for you given the longer sales cycle it takes when you first have to convince someone just of the value prop itself being kind of a new category that you're creating? Was that tough? And how do you explain that to the sales team who may be used to a faster cadence of closing and also 
to investors who may look at kind of slower at the beginning growth in numbers than they're used to given the new category creation. How did you kind of approach that? Yeah, so it's interesting because you have to navigate your adoption curve, sort of like the crossing of the castle pumps. You have to navigate it incredibly carefully. And at this point, we're talking not just about selling, but we're talking about company building. So I always have to build a product and sell against a market that is ready to buy what I have to sell. At the very early of outreach, we were mostly tech, meaning selling to tech people. Matter of fact, the first million dollars of AR came from me and a, a small team walking around Soma District in San Francisco, selling door to door. That kind of evangelism. Because what I had to sell, people would not believe it existed. And I can only sell to other startups that were ready to take on risks and to whom I don't look any different. If I were to try to sell to AT&T, who is a customer now, or AWS, who is a customer now, they actually walked me out the door at AWS because they were like, yeah, we don't need what you got. And they didn't even know that it was possible. And what would you bet on a you know, four or five person startup? But as you continue to grow and the market continues to evolve, then you can actually move to the early majority, if you would. So to, for you, what, what yeah. was the sign that you could transition from the startups in Soma who are willing to adopt the product early versus your AT&T? When do you know when's the right time to cross the chasm between early adopter to early majority, so to speak? So funnily enough, we haven't crossed the chasm. So we're still very early in this category. So we're still sort of just peaking into the early majority, just peaking into it. We, we haven't gotten to it. We're still very tech heavy, if you would. Now, the, te- the size of the tech company is a lot larger. And now you're seeing sort of risk takers like Palo Alto Networks are buying and, and sort of setting the standard for everybody else. But it's still really early. So I can't tell you how to tell because I haven't gotten there yet. But I think that there are some early indicators in terms of the quality of your inbound. All of a sudden, A shows up and B is a little higher. The quality of the conversations as you go to things like Zaster or Dreamforce or AISP or even Unleash, et cetera. Like when you start going to these conferences and you see the quality of the conversation sort of evolving from like, all I need is CRM to where are my reps going to live and what's my engagement strategy going to look like? And that's when you start getting the feel for the market and the market is charting a lot of it. The other one, I was talking to a gentleman yesterday, Ariel Myers, who used to run Apollo. And he was mentioning that he came into Apollo and he immediately doubled the price and nothing happened. That's a sign that the market is a little bit more ready than you otherwise would. So there is oh, there is sort of tests that you can do. You can increase prices. You can sort of try to go upstairs. We had a motion that we called sort of like nights and weekends where we sold to mid-market and commercial accounts because we were not, we were doubting that the velocity of those accounts was going to turn up. And then all of a sudden that nights and weekends activities took over our regular activities because there was so much of it. So that's the other way to do it is you sort of can carve out a few hours of your week to try to sell into accounts that you're not supposed to or accounts that potentially may not be ready. And when they start taking over your activities, then all of a sudden you know that that's a prosperous area of prospecting and sort of closing. This is hilarious. I wrote a full schedule and I'm completely ignoring it because I'm so enjoying this conversation. But I do have to go back to, you said about kind of walking around Soma and selling door to door. I was uh, meeting a founder the other day, early stage SaaS founder, pitching for their seed round. And I said to him, have you been selling the products yourself? They're at 50K MRR. And he looked yeah. and said, no, no, we've got sales reps. No, no, I, I, I don't do the selling. For me, I had this gut reaction of, oh, I, I think you should be doing the selling at some point. You are the founder, whether it's the first 20K of MRR or up to 100, whatever it is, but you should be doing. Do you agree with that? Or am I missing a trick to think that the founder should always be at the forefront of the selling motion at some process of the journey? I tell any founder that wants to talk to me that if you haven't sold at least half a million dollars of worth of your product to somebody, then you're not doing this right. I actually wouldn't even take the call or that conversation will be over right there and then because then you're not putting in the work. There's a whole like literature around product market validation and MVPs and product market fit and all that. I think a 
lot of it is overstated. Take your product, sell it. If you can sell it to a lot of people, you got fit and do it again. You know what I mean? And so that fit evolves over time. It's very simple. No, I totally get you. I do love the simplicity there. The other thing that I have to ask you about is the pricing. We touched on it there. In terms of pricing, I'm always constantly challenged by the element of disincentivization in pricing. And, you know, if you do seat-based pricing, people can share them. And there's often sharing within organizations. If you do volume-based pricing, it discourages people from using the product. How do you think about the optimal pricing mechanism to use with the right variables? So that's a great question, and I'm not an expert. Matter of fact, we only have pretty much one seat price that varies with value. So, you know, you're talking to the wrong person here. But since you got me on the phone and all, my take is that your pricing needs to be A, simple, and B, it needs to encourage use. So I don't know, depending on the business that you're in. So for instance, we are in the business of generating engagement per rep. So when a rep buys us, immediately they need to see a pop in the amount of accounts or engaged and then eventually in the number of meetings set and then that will translate in the opportunity to close throughout that entire journey is engagement so for me charging per seat is the right way to go now we did sit abusers we did we saw abusers when when we were starting of people buying five seats and taking those seats and sharing them we released this feature that actually bit us in the ass that would allow you to sort of send from different email addresses mostly because we sold to a few agencies really early on and they were representing different customers but we let that feature sort of run and then we realized that users were taking that and turning a team of two into a team of 10 by creating fake names and sending from all those names from different email addresses. So that created a bit of abuse in the in the application. But actually, that is good news because that just shows that people need more of what you got. So I wouldn't take abuse per se as a problem. I would take that as a sign of product market fit and that you need to create a more education around what it is that you do so that people know how to use it and understand the value. Again, I see abuse as a good news because that means that the people need what you have and you just need to package it and price it correctly and ship it. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. If, uh, if they're that keen to use it, that they're abusing it, it's always a good sign. I do want to ask, though, to move into the quick fire round, Manny. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. In about 60 seconds per one, are you ready to roll? Let's do it. So how does sales and prospecting evolve over the next 10 years, Manny? I think that you're going to see activities removed from your day-to-day, such as making sure your CRM is synced and remembering to follow up and making sure you're taking the right next action based on what is important and the computer is going to tell you what to do and the computer is going to calculate in the background your efficiency and your capacity and it's going to give your management a number of how many more of you there is needed to hit a particular number so it's going to be very human and very automated at the same time how important is brand today in the world of enterprise b2b i think it's incredibly important given the amount of noise that is out there and i don't know the answer to this question because we're not a well-known brand and we're still very much into the street game of capturing hearts and minds on a city-by-city basis. So I think in the future, it will be relevant, very relevant. But for now, the board is exploding. There is a start. It doesn't take much to start a company. So you have to go out and and just fight it out without a brand. We spoke about founders and the importance of them selling there in the early days. When is the right time to hire your first VP of sales to you? You only hire a VP of sales when you need to give somebody a title so that you can retain that person. But you don't hire anybody above a VP until you get to at least $5 So you may have somebody leading your team, in my mind, but that person is selling as much as you are. There's no such, the connotation of having a VP is that that person is sort of sitting back and managing the troops and nobody gets to just be a full-time manager until you're a very, so you're in the growth stage.
stage of your company. That's my take. Yeah, no, I love it. What would you most like to change in the world of SaaS today, Manny? I would love for people to start going back to some first principles. So every year, every six months, there is a new flavor of brown or black in terms of metrics or efficiency, magic, magic four, magic ratio, magic this, percentage of that. And at the end of the day, the unit economics and your user engagement with your application is really what will determine winners from losers. So we need, we need to stop talking about all these different ratios and economic indicators and talk about is the dog eating the dog food or would people willing to pay for it and sticking around. So I would love to see a bit more back to first principles thinking into how we think about SaaS. But tell me, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with outreach? That you have to quickly evolve as a leader. You have to quickly evolve from being driven by the next intervention to thinking in systems. And for me, it was a bit of a, a few hard lessons of, Manny, you need to stop running and trying to single-handedly move things around or change things because you know how to do it. But if you're building a company that will last and stand the test of time, you need to be able to see the system for what it is and try to diagnose what is making the system do what it's doing. Manny, as I said at the beginning, I had so many great things from Alex. I've been super excited for this one for a long time. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for the time. I mean, Morda here, and as I said, the schedule completely went out the window there. I don't think I asked one question off the schedule, but it's a sign of a brilliant interview for sure. And if you'd like to see more from Manny, you can find him on Twitter at Medinism. Likewise, it'd be great to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can find us on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. Really would be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, if there's one thing I suck at, it's organization, and that's always around expenses for me. Keeping receipts, losing them, taking photos months later, oh, it's a nightmare. And then we started using Plio, and then enables employees to buy what they need for work with no fuss and no more out-of-pocket purchases. Plus, you take the photo of the receipt in real time, so you don't even need to keep the receipt. And the design is beautiful. Genuinely, it makes it quite fun. Clearly, I need to get out more given I just said that. But don't take my word for it. More than 5,000 European companies use Plio, from Viner Media to Voy and Byron, and you can check them out today. And for SaaS to listeners only, Plio are saying, hey, go on your next business lunch paid for by Plio, and they give you £50 on the Plio card to trial. Genuinely, I absolutely love it and you can check it out today at plio.io forward slash Sasta. However, metrics are key to every business and misreported metrics are damaging. Missed revenue opportunities and multiplying process inefficiencies. Does that sound familiar? Well, everyone in your go-to-market org is punching above their weight, yet no needle is moving nearly as fast as it should. Each morning you wake up with the three big questions, increasingly hard to answer revenue questions, that is. How do we sustain the revenue we're bringing in? How do we identify more avenues to grow revenue? And how can we get real-time visibility into the cracks and fissures of the revenue engine. If that's you, it's exceedingly likely that your revenue infrastructure and processes are headed towards a dreaded natural conclusion, or rather a tangle, a huge bowl of SaaS spaghetti. That diagnosis screams of a revenue operations problem. You can head on over to chargebee.com to learn more about how to battle these inefficiencies in your revenue engine. And if you want to untangle your revenue operations with Chargebee, use Harry25 at checkout and get 25% off your plan. That's Harry25 to and finally, thanks to my friends at WePay. Let me introduce you to another super cool player in the space, Invaluable, the world's leading online marketplace for fine art, antiques, and collectibles. Auction houses, galleries, and dealers use Invaluable to grow their businesses and connect more people around the world with the things they love. And it works with more than 5,000 auction houses globally, including Sotheby's and Philips. And Sotheby's is actually using them as their core technology partner for online bidding on all of its auctions. And you can learn more today at invaluable.com. But you can also find growth with the combination of WePay 
Pay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you our most downloaded 2019 investor episode next week.